You're listening to TIP. There's few days that I don't wake up now that I kind of can't believe how lucky I am. And I think a lot of that has to do with how many people have helped me along the way and have been kind and gracious and giving and taken a risk on me. And I mean, I could talk about it for hours. I want to, as much as possible, obviously pay that forward and try to be that person for other people. Hey guys, in this week's episode, I interviewed Sean Sweeney. I wanted to get Sean on the show for quite some time and was really excited to get the chance to sit down and talk with him. He's got a fascinating story and we discuss his early days taking a job as a receptionist in San Francisco for a developer just to get his foot in the door and learn as much as he could. Sean is the co-founder of Hall Sweeney, which has developed seven ground-up new construction projects in Minneapolis with a total value of over $100 million. I found Sean's rise from receptionist to developer to be incredibly inspiring. His story highlights that where there is vision, persistence, and determination, amazing achievements can unfold in one's life. Now, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Sean Sweeney. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Donnelly, and I've got a really special guest with me today, someone I've been following pretty closely on Twitter, Sean Sweeney. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Patrick. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really happy to have you here today. You've got a really interesting... I love origin stories on Twitter, and I love to read about them. And yours kind of reads like a Joseph Campbell kind of hero's journey path in a lot of ways. Your path to becoming where you are now as a successful real estate developer was not a clear one from the beginning. So for some of our younger listeners, talk to us about your early years, some of the road bumps that you encountered as you were trying to figure out your path. Sure. Appreciate that. I tell people now it's the only story I've got. It is what it is. But I was definitely not someone who really had a clue what they were going to do. You know, As we talked, I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, went to college at Madison. As graduation was nearing, a lot of my friends had jobs. And they were moving to Chicago to work at this firm or that firm. And, and I just was at that point in my life, I had no idea what sounded interesting to me. I ended up I had taken some acting classes my senior year of college. And as a 22-year-old, I was like, hey, this seems like a great idea. I'm going to go be an actor. Basically, it meant I'm not going to go get a real job. And I'm going to bart- continue to bartend and wait tables and, and do that kind of stuff. But I moved to Chicago with that plan, basically. like I'm going to go be an actor and I'm going to take improv classes and, and figure it out. I ended up doing that for a couple of years, actually. I, I was in a couple of movies. I was, got lucky and was in some commercials. And, and yeah, I had a, li- a, a very, very minor amount of success. But just about the amount where it was like, if you really want to make a career of this, you need to move to New York or Los Angeles. And I had a girlfriend at the time who I just started dating, who's now my wife who had actually just moved from Los Angeles to Chicago, saying, I want to get out of Los Angeles. I don't want to be in the entertainment industry. And I liked her and was like, hey, I'm, I don't really want to go move and do the opposite. So looked at other ideas. And long story short on that front, she ended up getting into grad school back in California after a year. And I had looked at going to law school, had, had gotten kind of fortunate, talked my way into actually my old friend's job at a law firm, being a law clerk, where I didn't really do much. But halfway through that year, I took the LSAT, I applied to law school. It's every communications, liberal arts major's kind of backup plan, right? And I got into a school in California. So we were, Kim and I were going to move out there together. And about halfway through the year, the law firm I was working at was a small firm in Chicago. It got acquired by Holland and Knight, which is a much larger kind of national law firm. And my job switched. I went from being a, a law clerk who basically did nothing but walk down the hall and drop off papers at the courthouse or go by get people lunch to actually working very closely with this bankruptcy attorney. He ended up giving me a lot of work, which was great. And I, I learned a ton. But I would walk around that law firm and think, boy, I don't envy any of these people. I don't want to be... These guys are 60, 70, whatever. They have money. Everything's good. And they're in here 90 hours a week. Like This, looks, this seems horrible. And I had a, a serendipitous launch with a couple of the other people doing my same job who were significantly older than me. And we were joking, of, you know, as, as you do when you go out to lunch with colleagues, when you're low on the totem pole, you, you complain about your boss and you joke about the company and you know, you, you kind of 
air your dirty laundry. And they happened to mention how much money they were making. And back at this time, this was 2001 or 2002, 2002, you know, they were making 50, 60,000 bucks as a paralegal. And I was making 26. And I remember saying, we're doing the same job. Why are you, you know, I can barely pay my rent. And, you know, not that $60,000 was the be all end all at that point, but to me, that was a huge amount of money. So we got back from lunch and I went into the basically, not the guy I worked for, but the HR department. And I said, look, I want to raise. Not that I'm asking to get paid what they're paying. I understand they had way more seniority, but I'm doing the same job. And they basically looked at me and said, you get paid based on how long you've worked here. That for me at that age was such a light bulb moment of, why would I want to work in an industry where I get paid only based on how often my butt's in the seat and how many years I've worked here versus how good am I at the job? How much value am I creating? What am I bringing to the table? And that was kind of in line at the same time that the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad fell on my desk. And it was kind of those two events happening in about a week's time where I, I realized quickly, this is not the road for me. I need to go figure something else out. Did you grow up in an entrepreneurial family or a real estate family at all? Not, not at all. My, my, I don't think either one of my parents has ever invested a single dollar that they've made. My mom grew up in Israel and uh, moved to America in her 20s. Basically, when she was married to my dad, odd jobs, assistant, receptionist, some stuff like that. Stayed home with us at various periods as well. Uh, my dad is actually a lawyer by trade, but he is a he works for the state. Of, he's worked for the state of Wisconsin for 40 years. So that was my vision of lawyers. I thought they all went to work at nine, came home at five, played baseball with their kids till 8.30, and then went to bed and did it all over again. I quickly realized that there's a difference in income and a, diff- a difference in lifestyle, depending on what kind of lawyer you are. I had had, I mean, I respect my dad a ton. I think he had a great career, but I, I had, for whatever reason, bigger ambitions to, to want to do more and, and frankly, to want to make money and, and do different things out in the world. Yeah. So you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think you also had an uncle too that you maybe spoke to that was doing some real estate investing. I did. After So I read the, I read the book and that, and that combined with the experience with the, the law firm, I ended up deferring my, my law school acceptance for a year and then ultimately just saying no. But when Kim moved out to California, I went with her. And the first six months or a year of my time there was basically, you know, and I, I joke, I'm just old enough that the internet was a baby at that point. You couldn't hop online and study for 10 hours. I, I was on the phone. I'd call one person and say, hey, anybody else I could talk to? And they'd put me in touch with somebody else. And as it went, I, my uncle Brian was doing uh, some development actually here in, in the Minneapolis area at that time. And I remember talking to him and listening to how he described the work and the job and like the things he did. And I just remember getting off the phone and thinking, that's the cool, like, that sounds amazing. I love art. I love design. I've been obsessed with buildings since I can ever remember. And I honestly, Patrick, I didn't even realize that was a career option. You know, it was one of those things where like the light bulb, the light went on of like, wow, there's people out there that own these buildings and build these buildings and that's their job. I felt a little embarrassed being 24, 25 years old and not realizing that until that point, but it was a great eye opener. And I, I quickly set out, we were living in the San Francisco Bay Area then as I quickly set out and said, okay, I'm going to be a real estate developer. Let's go. And it was also back when, you know, to get a job, you had to write a cover letter and send a resume in the mail, right? Via snail mail. You'd go online. I think Craigslist had finally come out. So there was at least a monster.com, I think was the, was the job board. You know, so there was at least a little bit of internet. And I just decided I, I was going to send cover letters and resumes to every real estate firm within two hours of San Francisco that I could find. As the months went on, probably not surprisingly now, no one called. Right, I got no, I got no calls. Nobody wanted to interview me. No, with bartending and acting on my resume, surprised that no one was really into me. But you know, so it goes. I kind of realized maybe I need to go to grad school. I really didn't want to, but I thought maybe if I go get an MBA or I do, I do something to show people that I'm interested in real estate. I, I actually started to get a real estate license. At least I was like, look, I, I got to do something to show people that I'm really interested in. As I was kind of digging through how to apply to grad school and how to figure that all out, I realized yeah, I got a phone call one day and this woman called me and said, Hey, I think you sent your resume to us by mistake because we're looking for a receptionist. And I said, You're a real estate firm, right? And she said, Yeah. And you know, at that point I I hadn't kept a list of the three hundred people I'd emailed. You know, I knew remembered some, but it was like, I don't know who this person is. And she said, Look, we actually need a receptionist. We're a small firm. 
would you have any interest in coming to talk to us? Because we had this, we like hit it off on the phone. It was one of those moments where we just had this great conversation. So he's like, you know what? Why don't you just come in? Because who knows? And I said, sure, great. Uh, I went up there the next day. It was about, it turned out it was about an hour and 15 minutes from my apartment. So I drove up, had the interview, and I met one of the principals of the firm and her. And he's, the first thing he said to me was, why are you here? This is, you want to be my receptionist, really? And my response was, look, I'm really interested in real estate. I don't have any experience, but I, I'm smart. I will work super hard and I'll do anything you want. I'll, I'll be the receptionist. I'll make coffee. I'll sweep the floor. I mean, I'll literally do whatever you want me to do if you just let me in the door. He kind of laughed and said, well, let us, let us think about it. We'll, we'll call you. And I was like, okay. And I laughed figuring, all right, well, gave it a shot, right? And about a week later, they called me and said, are you still interested in being the receptionist? They said, why don't you come back up? Went back up, met the rest of the team. Long story short, ended up getting offered the job as the receptionist. And the company was Thompson Dorfman Partners. And, and Will and Bruce, who ran the firm, had worked at Trammell Crow, had worked at the Irvine Company, had run Trammell Crow's West Coast operation for a long time, and had then just recently broken off to, to start their own firm. So these were not small-time developers. I mean, these were big guns. And I had no idea what that meant when I first started. You know, I didn't know what that was, but I couldn't have gotten luckier with the guys I, I got an offer from and I commuted an hour and 10 minutes each way for 40,000 bucks a year to be the receptionist. They thought I was crazy. What I think is so cool is like you made it known to them, like, I'm here to learn as much as I can. I think you said you told a project manager maybe that you knew how to do Excel at one point, and I don't think you knew how to do Excel, or you maybe taught yourself at home that night and you were doing some IT. You were doing a little bit of everything. I think it's awesome, you know, that that kind of outside of the box thinking. You know, initially you had considered more traditional education, like an MBA. Did you get their advice on whether you should pursue an MBA? That's a great question, Patrick. I did after a while. I started when I started with them, as I said, I, I just wanted to get in the door. And then a couple months in, the Excel story happened where the vice president came to me and said, Hey, you know how to do spreadsheets, right? He's like, I'm busy, I need help. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, no, I don't. But my gut was like, here's a chance to start doing some real work. Say yes and figure it out. So I did that. And after about six months, I, I said to the, they had kind of said, look, we're really impressed with the fact that you've been driving two and a half hours a day to be the receptionist and, and, and you're obviously committed. We'd love to start giving you some more to do. And I said, that's great. But I said, guys, I don't know how to do anything still. I've gotten really good at making coffee and I know where Kinko's is and you know some of the other stuff, but I'm like, I don't have any experience. And they said, you'll, you'll figure it out. And what I said, what I, what I did is I went home and did some research and I found out like Berkeley had a, a part-time night MBA program and there were some other options like that in, in the area. Luck, obviously, luckily in the Bay Area, there's a lot of good educational opportunities. And I said to them, guys, I could apply to this Berkeley program. I don't know if I'd get in, but I could certainly try. And would that be a good idea? Their response was, seems like a heck of a lot of money to spend to get your old job back when you're done. I was a little taken aback, but but their point was like, look, you're already in the door now. Now you just got to learn on the job. And I appreciated that, Patrick, because I, I paid for my college myself. I was fortunate I had an academic scholarship at Madison, but I, you know, I worked 20, 30 hours a week at a bar to pay my room and board, to provide food, to you know, do anything I wanted to. Uh, so if I was going to go to grad school, that $150,000 Berkeley program was coming out of my pocket, of which I had none. It was kind of a relief to think. And, and you know, to be fair, especially to folks out there considering it, the fact that I didn't do it 20 years later, I can look back and say, yeah, that was, that was the right choice. There was a lot of self-doubt around that for several years after that, wondering, should I have done it? Because if I ever leave these guys, you know, is it going to, you know, all, all those types of questions always nagged at me. And after I became a project manager with them, all the guys at the other companies had MBAs. And so it was over a 20-year arc. It turned out to be just fine. But I will say that in the, in the first few years, there was definitely some insecurity and some doubt around the fact that I didn't have the same education as a lot of the other people who were, were in, the, in the field. And I mean, even at the firm, I, both of the guys who ran the firm had MBAs, one from Harvard and one from UCLA. Yeah. So it's hard not to think like, ah, I should, if I want to do this, I'd need that too. I'm writing an article right now. We actually publish a newsletter and it's coming out tomorrow. About the, It's about the traits that make for a successful real estate investor. And one of them that I have is like a long-term vision. Did you have a clear vision as you started working in San Francisco as the receptionist or did that develop over time as opportunities arose? Talk to us about that, how your vision for what you're doing now came about. 
if I'm being totally honest, I think I always deep down knew this is what I wanted to do. Once I found out about it, once I really figured out this is it, because of the... Again, the origin story sounds cool now because I ended up where I did. But there was a lot of years where there was a lot of self-doubt around that and a lot of, am I in the right place? Is, is this even for somebody like me? You know, These guys are all financial wizards and this, that, or the other thing. And so there, there was a lot of doubt around it for a long time. There was, a, there was more than one occasion where I, I interviewed for some other job in some other field. And I thought, I just don't think this is for... I just don't think I can do it. I, I don't think... I'm built like a lot of these guys. You know, what, what's turned out... Again, twenty. It's it's great to have the benefit of twenty years of hindsight. What's turned out to probably be my greatest strength is the unconventional way I came up and the way I think about things and, and my design angle and, and some of the other stuff that I thought for frankly fifteen of the twenty years I've been doing this that that made me less than. And it's only been in the last four, five, six, seven, eight years where I've realized it's actually my competitive advantage. There's somebody, I think Moses tweeted today that somebody else tweeted it, but the comment was real estate gets really easy once you learn who you are. That's a, that, oh, I, that's an amazing statement. That is so true. I mean, I, I know that I tweeted at one point because I, I'm, you know, again, I'm really fortunate now where, I, where I've landed and, and how things have worked out. But in the 20 years I've been doing this career, the first 15 were really hard. They were really hard. Both just from a dollars and cents and an experience and you know all of the reasons, there was a lot of self-doubt as well as I went through the process. And it really, once I started my own firm and once I had some modest level of, oh wow, this might actually work, or this seems like this is gonna work, has it really gotten fun? I like talking about the 2008 great financial crisis. There's a lot of investors that have not lived through a downturn, younger guys. I, older guys that live through it, I like to talk about it. What was it like for you? Real estate obviously did not pan out well for a lot of people during that time, really difficult time. I think at that time, maybe you moved from San Francisco back to Minnesota at that point. What was it like going through the downturn for you? How did you handle it? It was really... I mean, it was a tough time. I, the years I spent at Thompson Dorfman were... I mean, I think of Will and Bruce. I think of Bruce as my older brother, and I think of Will like a second father. And we're still in touch today. We still get together. We still talk. So it, it was the decision to leave working there was much more than just switching a job or moving to a different city. We had essentially had a secession plan in place by that point that they had kind of said, look, you stick with us, and this is yours one day. That was a lot to walk away from. But in 2008, in 2008 they made me basically a, an associate partner. And they said, look, we're going to start paying you like a developer. When, when we make money, you make money. We'll start bonusing you. We'll start doing... And I, was, I remember going home and telling Kim and we had just gotten engaged. So I'm sure she was like, oh, thank God. But I'm not, I'm not marrying the receptionist. That's good. But within the next 12 months, the whole world unraveled. And I was really fortunate. They didn't fire me. They, they said, look, <laughs> they always joke, we don't pay you. We didn't pay you enough to, to need to get rid of you. It didn't really matter. But out in California and in a lot of big markets, right? the entitlement process is, is many, many years. You know, We had deals that we were working on in 2003 when I joined them that in 2009 when I left, we were still working on that hadn't broken ground. I was 30. I turned 30 in 2008. Kim and I got married in 2009. And you know, you start asking yourself those big questions at that point in time, right? We're married now. How how are we going to have a family? Where are we going to live? You know, how are all these things going to happen? And out there, making not much money, Kim wasn't making any money at this point. Like it was, it was really daunting to think about how can we even make this work anymore? If I'm not going to make any money with these guys for at least five more years, how are we going to do this? And we looked at moving an hour outside the city or moving, you know, mo- moving to Austin or Portland. I, I joke, I cost myself a lot of money by not moving to Austin in 2010 <laughs> instead of Minneapolis. But so it goes. And we got to the point where we realized we're going to run out of money. Like, we just can't do this anymore. We're going to get, you know, we're going to end up on the wrong side of things. And we made the really, really difficult decision to move. And we, we, we chose Minneapolis mostly with a two year plan. I mean, mostly because my wife's mom lived here. And we had a free place to come live, honestly. I mean, I tell, I try to be really transparent to people on Twitter and in general. When I was 31 years old, I was living in my mother-in-law's basement. I didn't have a dollar to my name. I was negative net worth living in my mother-in-law's basement because I had just spent five, six years getting 
in hindsight, world-class experience, but I never was in the right seat at the right time to ever financially benefit from that experience. And we moved here mostly because we could live at our mom's house for free. And then we figured we'll give it two years. And if we don't like it, we'll move somewhere else, right? But we got to go somewhere. We got to kind of lick our wounds and, and figure it out. I was really fortunate that I actually was able to get a real estate job in Minneapolis in two thousand at the end of 2009. There's a great company here called Artspace Projects that does tax credit development for artists around the country. And very few people have acting and real estate development experience on their resume. So I happened to be really fortunate and you know got super lucky that, that I was able to get a job. So I was able to at least get a job and move here and get paid to still live. And after a couple of years here, we just fell in love with the place. And I was really fortunate that when the market started to turn in late 2010, early 2011, I had worked basically a second job networking because my strategy was... When the market turns, I can't be the new guy who just showed up. People have to know me. So when opportunities happen, my phone, you know, somebody will call me or I'll at least be able to find out about them. And I was really lucky that that's how it played out. And then in 2011, uh, I was deciding between a couple of development jobs and then an opportunity popped up in an investment fund to help them buy multifamily around the country. And because it was a commission job and I was 32 at that point, still had no money, I figured... I got to go do this and I got to go crush it and I got to hope for the best. And so that was doing acquisitions for tertiary multifamily, right? Yes. Firm's name is Timberland Partners. They're a phenomenal firm based here in the, the Twin Cities, started by a, a former broker in the 90s, just buying tertiary apartments and around the Midwest and the South. And they, Bob had a great vision that he saw the market turning and he said, I think there's going to be a great run for multifamily. We need to get aggressive and go start buying as much as we can. I was hired to open new markets for them, basically. They had a platform from Minnesota down to Texas, but there was a bunch of other tertiary markets around in Florida, in Nashville, and St. Louis. And I, my job was to basically get on a plane and go make friends in those cities and help them buy projects. And it was class, kind of class B, think about garden style class B multifamily in the suburbs of tertiary markets, basically. Secondary and tertiary markets. Yep. Some of the markets now are not considered tertiary or secondary, like Nashville or some of the Florida markets we bought in. But at the time, nobody was looking in there. It was a life-changing... I mean, I'd almost say my third life-changing job in a row to work with those guys because not only was finally my timing financially good, I had the beauty of being in a commission role where if we bought $200 million of real estate in a year, I was going to get paid accordingly. And it was a really... I learned so much from those guys. I learned a ton about... It really rounded out my experience too. Because in, in California, a lot of it was... developed. You know, Once I got out of the front desk, it was project management. right? I, I wasn't putting deals together. I wasn't working on financing. It was, okay, here's the project. Now you go execute this and make sure we get to the end. And here it was, here's a, here's a laptop and here's a phone. Go buy apartments. It was a totally different thing. And Unbelievable. It gave me such great experience on how to put deals together and, and you know how to be a deal maker. There's no way that I would have been able to jump off, start my own development firm, and get any traction if I didn't have that experience with those guys at Timberland. It really paved the way for me. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI 
for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. So I wanted to circle back. You touched on while you were at the tax credit company, you were networking like crazy. It sounded like, you know, almost like you said a second job. So for people that are maybe introverts, don't like networking, what would you say to them? Like the importance of it, how important has it been to like the success in your career? Like you said, you didn't want to be the new guy showing up once things turned around. Talk to us how important that networking process was and maybe some tips on how to do it. I think it's extremely important. I do think as I've gotten older, I do think there's a... Especially for people who are introverted or shy or you know, it's, it's not enjoyable. I do think there's a kind of a path to, to saying, I don't need the biggest network. You know, go, I always tell people now, go make five best friends. You don't need 50. A lot of people who enjoy networking, you try to make all 50 your best friends, certainly. But if it's not your normal way, I'm really fortunate that for me, networking is kind of like it's almost ingrained. I make friends easily. I I enjoy it. It gives me energy to meet new people and do those things. So for me, it was a a really great thing. But I understand if it's not how you're wired, that it can be intimidating and difficult. I think the beauty too now is you have the internet, right? I mean, even in 2010, you know, Facebook was just getting started and people were on MySpace and there was, you know, Friendster, but it, it was nowhere near the mass adoption that there is today. I think Twitter, I think some of these other platforms, I mean, it's, it's a great way if you, you don't feel like getting in front of people to really learn how those, those websites work and those social media platforms work and use them to your advantage. LinkedIn, you know, all that type of stuff. I mean, people always ask me now that my, my Twitter account has grown pretty significantly in two years. Boy, you're so lucky. How does it work? And, da, da, da. and I've always said, you know what, guys? Once my account started growing, I studied how Twitter worked. I understand every post I make, there's a reason I'm making it, right? There's, a, I mean, I, I, of course, keep, I try to keep my humanity and I'm, I'm always interacting with people, but there's an actual strategy to building your presence on Twitter. And it's the same, on, you know, it's not the same strategy, but on LinkedIn, there's one on all these other platforms. I'd encourage people if it's not, you know, if coffee, lunch, and dinner isn't your thing, get active on these platforms and, and you can certainly meet a bunch of people. But when I, to circle back, when I, when I moved, yeah, I, and my job for Artspace was actually helping them kind of stabilize eight or ten properties around the country. So I was on an airplane all the time too. 
I wasn't here that often. So every day I was here, it was breakfast or lunch or dinner with somebody I was usually treating, didn't have any money still. So, (laughs) you know, it was a tough thing, but I just kept at it. And I think one of the keys to networking is not going in with an ask, right? You're not there to get something from someone. You're there to, you're there to make a connection and to meet someone and to learn about them. And, you know, maybe they can help you, but hopefully maybe you can help them too. I think the, one of the other keys is it's to be patient with it. You know, I think some of the worst networking is when somebody sits down with you for the first time and it's a sales pitch 10 seconds in. That's not how you make connections with other people, right? And people, I've learned, you know, people want to help friends. People want to help people that they like. People, I, I love doing that now. I mean, young people, when they, people that I can be of assistance to, it makes me feel great to be able to do that for people. And when I first moved, it was just nonstop on that. I do remember coming home one day, though, after about a year of it and saying to Kim, I'm done with this. I can't network. I am burnt out. I can't do it anymore. And I remember she looked at me and I mean, most of what I've accomplished, I probably have her to thank is just keep going a little longer. Just keep going a little bit more. And it was one of those things where like two months after she said that the world started turning, my phone started ringing and all that year and a half of networking I had put in was starting to pay off. I said to somebody the other day too, which I found, which I hadn't, hadn't occurred to me was, I'm surprised how much of that year and a half of networking didn't pay off immediately, but paid off 10 years later when I started my own company. When you know, I have people sending me opportunities now who I met during that period who I maybe haven't talked to more than five times since then. It's really interesting how that, that stuff works long term too. Yeah. The patience part of it is really important. And, and like you said, not going in with a taker mentality. I think, you know, you were just trying to make a connection with people. That's really the key. Like maybe you can help them give to them. The taker mentality is just kind of a turn off, I think, obviously for most people. But if you get someone really young and genuine, it is, it's awesome to be able to help someone like that who's really hungry. And just to add one point that I think is super important about networking, and that is follow up. People don't, people do so much networking and then they never follow up, right? You meet, I mean, I've probably met a hundred people once. And I say to each... And that's when I'm on the side of being the person wanting to be networked with. And I say, follow up with me. Because guess what? I hear about every real estate job in this market before it goes on any job board or any... I know who's looking for people. I know what deals are out there. You know, Those of us on the inside, we know all of that stuff before everybody else hears about it. And I've only... I, I tell the story. I've had one guy consistently follow up with me over the years. And over like the seven-year period, I've known him. I gave him equity. I helped. I loaned him money to. I loaned him equity to buy his first duplex. I got him his first job in real estate development, and I introduced him to the person who ended up being his future business partner when he started his own development firm. The one kid who followed up with me consistently. You mean when you say follow up, you mean more than just a thank you note. You mean like following up, touching base, seeing what's check going in, on. Yeah, check in with me two or two, three, four times a year, every quarter. Just call me or email. Hey, how's it going? What are you hearing? What's going on? Just. Keep me fresh, you know, keep you fresh in mind. And I, I'm using me as the example. It's obviously applicable to anyone you're trying to get to know or in any industry, but find a reason to reach out to me once or twice or three times a year. Back to Twitter, which I know you love. I love. You tweeted, I saw that at 38, that you hit a breaking point in your life and you decided to burn the ships. And that's just what, six years ago? You're about to turn. 45. I'll be 45. I'll be 45 in less than a month. Yeah. So a lot has changed in your life since 38. Talk to us about what was going on with you both personally and professionally that you decided to just say, I'm going for this. I'm going to start my own company. I am burning the ships and going for it. I touched on it earlier that my unconventional entry into the industry and then kind of my feeling like I'm different you know, not, not seeing myself 20 years from now and most of the people in the industry as I was going along, I realized now we had a lot more in common than maybe I had thought, but a lot of self-doubt around that as I was going. And I was in like a lot of human beings, had some traumatic experiences in my childhood and, and never dealt with them. And as I got older, they, as they tend to do, they surfaced in ways that I wasn't really enjoying. And Started seeing therapists when I lived in California and then continued in my time in Minneapolis. And I actually still do to this day. But what happened is this eventually that self doubt went away. I mean, there, there is a day I will never forget. It was about a year and a half before I started my company that it clicked. It, like one of those moments in therapy where it just all clicks. I realized, holy crap, for the first time in my life, I feel good about myself. 
and I feel capable and confident. And wow, this is an amazing feeling to feel good about yourself and to feel confident in yourself. I took that with me and I finally could apply that to my career. I started realizing I should be getting equity in these projects I'm buying for the, you know, it just, once that light goes on and you realize your worth and your value, it just changes everything. And so my life got really different because I was really different. And I went along and I realized, okay, if I'm not going to get equity in this company and I'm bringing in a hundred million dollars worth of new projects every year, I've got to do something different or I got to make a change. I realized that that there I wanted to that I wanted to stay in real estate and that I wanted to I, I thought I wanted to get back into development because I really missed the creativity and and all the pieces of development. The buying the multifamily stuff was great, but it it wasn't something I, I could tell I didn't have a natural it didn't get me out of bed in the morning. It was a job, it paid really well. And you know, as I said, for the first time in my life I was getting paid well, so I, I was doing it, but there wasn't a spark. My wife and I actually did a renovation project on our house. And it lit the spark of like, oh yeah, there's that process again. And then I went out, I have a friend who we bought a site together and we started working on a development. We ended up selling it quickly because we both had other jobs and it it was, it got, you know, it was one of those like, oh, we probably shouldn't do this. But I remember during that process feeling like, oh my God, I feel alive again. I had more fun doing that side project than I had in, I couldn't tell you when. And and that's no dis, you know that's no down on what I was doing, but it was like it just felt different. And I realized deep down I am a developer, and I got to go do that. And so I was trying to figure out how to make that happen. And I had a really really bad couple of months. My mom, who had been sick for a long time, passed away. One of my best friends from college passed away as well. And then on a good note, we had our second kid shortly before those two deaths happened. And then. As silly as it sounds, my lifelong favorite sports team, the Chicago Cubs, won the World Series. And this, all four of those events, all of which are pretty big deals, happened in about a three and a half month period. And obviously, my, I think my mom's death probably being the, the hardest one of those to deal with, obviously, she was in her mid-70s when she passed away. And I was 38 at that time. And I realized I'm halfway there already. That's halfway. And I just had one of those moments of, I got to do this now or I'm never going to do it. I didn't, to my credit, I didn't quit my job the next day. We just, we had a brand new rehabbed house. I had, so I had a big mortgage. I had a wife who wasn't working. I had a second, we had two kids and I realized, okay, you know, if I was 24, I could probably quit my job tomorrow. I'll go do this, but we got to be a little more mindful about this and basically put together a a kind of a plan of like, I'm going to go interview around town and see what's available. And just to see. And, and there wasn't something that enticed me enough. So I decided to do it. And I knew I planned it out to when I would have enough, have a decent amount of money in the bank, given some timing of some deals that I would have a little bit of runway to live on when I went. So I, I waited till that time. And I remember telling my wife, here's what I'm thinking about doing. And she said, yeah, that seems like a great five or 10 year plan. And I said, no, I'm thinking about it like imminently. And she was like, oh boy. But to her credit, she has a lot of faith in me and really trusts me. And I, I, that goes a long way for making this all work too. And we had a plan together that was, we got to check in every three months, right? Because she said, what, what I want to avoid is you go a year or two and you get no traction. Then we have no savings left. And then it's like, oh crap, I need a job tomorrow. And then you get into something you don't want to do. So she said, let's just check, you know, let's make sure that we're three months in, let's check in six months, like, let's just make sure. And then if, if nothing's happened, you know, if, if a year in you have no traction, you probably shouldn't be doing it on your own anyways, right? And then you'll still have a little bit of time to go figure out a new job or get your old job back or something like that. That was our plan. And luckily, at the three-month check-in, I could say, honey, I already have three deals going. So we were good to go. Your company is called Hall Sweeney. So had you partnered with Jeff Hall right off the bat or were you doing some deals on your own? It was a little bit of both. Jeff and I partnered on the first deal I put together. And we actually partnered on the second deal I put together. But after we got into it, and by into it, I mean like a month or two into it, you know, we, I started looking at the numbers and how everything would work. And I thought, God, these are going to be great. But I also realized there's no cash out or payout for two or three years on either of these. And Jeff's a great... I went to Jeff and said, Look, I'm so glad we're doing these two deals. I've got to figure out a little more income sometime, somehow in the short term. And to his credit, and probably why he's my partner today, he said, look, 
He's like, you're a good salesman. You know a bunch of people. You've got a great network. Why don't you go see if somebody will hire you as a consultant? Or you can partner with a couple other people and learn and do some deals and just see. Because when I, when I left my job, it wasn't to partner with Jeff specifically. It was to, to start a company. So I, I was really fortunate that, that Jeff was cool with that. And I, I went and managed a, another great guy, Michael Pink, got into some deals with him, uh, partnered with another guy on another project. So all of a sudden, I started the company in late 2017 and, and in 2019, broke ground on five projects. So were you getting the sites under contract and bringing them to other developers? Is that how you were initially getting involved? No, actually not. I, so I, the sites that I found, I brought to Jeff. The site that ended up being this COLA project that we did, I found the site that was 29 Bryant, I found, and I brought both those to Jeff, another site that we acquired that we're, we're still holding on to. But I had other developers through my net, you know, I went back on the networking circuit, right? And started touching base with everybody and saying, hey, I'm, I'm doing a couple of projects, but I've got a little more bandwidth. So if you ever need another set of hands or you need a developer for hire or a fee guy, let me know. Cause you know, and, and everybody gets it. They knew I was just starting. And I said, look, I've got as much time as I can make. I don't have any money right now. So, you know, you don't need to give me equity. I'll work for fee, like whatever, whatever we can do. And everything turned out to be a good mix of everything. But I was really, really fortunate that I was able to find my way into some other deals. I got some great experience, met some great people, learned how to work with some different architects and some different builders. And after that first round of, of projects finished in 2020, thankfully all leased up well despite COVID and some of, the, some of the other challenges that were out there. What really dawned on me, and I, I can't speak for Jeff, but hopefully on Jeff too, was what great partners we would be. I really enjoyed working with him. I think we see the world very similarly. We, we share values. We want our business to... We want our day to day to be similar, you know. Just we we really were aligned on the big stuff, and then on the other stuff, we have really complementary skills. I mean, we obviously overlap in a ton of places, but Jeff is a very confident, humble, intelligent, mindful, and he's he doesn't get rattled. And I'm a little more excitable. I'm a little more like go 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 salesman out there making stuff happen, and and I get more. I probably get more worked up about stuff than he does, and it's just been a really nice balance of. The two of us together, I tell people, are, are kind of one plus one is three. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% in APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. 
Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. How did you decide to do infill development? And for the listeners that don't know, explain what infill development is and how you decided on that niche. Because you'd been doing, sounded like multifamily stuff more. That was mostly what you knew. Why did you decide on infill development? Well, at that point in time, there are a couple of reasons. One was I saw, I just saw opportunity in the market there. I saw that a lot of people were building 200 unit projects and other people were buying duplexes. But there was all of these sites around Minneapolis and other cities like that that could fit 50 units or 70 units and nobody was doing it. So A, I just saw opportunity and B, through the therapy and just kind of as I became more and more comfortable with myself, I was able to look back over my career and my life and just be able to connect a lot more dots. And I realized living in... I've always lived in a city. I've always been interested in architecture. It just intuitively made sense to me. I can't go out into a a far out city, buy some cornfields and envision how that's going to work. It just doesn't make logical sense to me. I know that it works and there's plenty of people who have a tremendous career doing that kind of stuff. But I can walk around a city and redevelop sites in my head as I'm walking around the city. It just it's just intuitive to me. I realized the opportunity plus the kind of the intuition plus I just thought it was going to be more fun and I think you can I realized that design was going to be an important component of how I did the business and I thought that the city is you know in urban cities is the best place for those types of projects. I want to discuss how you go about acquiring a site and what factors go into your decision making process on whether or not you make an offer on a property. We look at sites. I mean, we're again, we're primarily urban builders. We are working on a couple of suburban projects right now, but I would call them suburban, if you will. They're they're actually urban sites in suburbs. One's on on a main street, and another one's a, a big master plan that we're basically creating an entirely new community. So when we're looking at sites, we're we're looking at the city and we're looking at the neighborhood and we're looking at what's missing, basically, right? I look at a city as like a puzzle. It's this big puzzle that's been put together, but there's always missing pieces in places. And you go to these, you go to great neighborhoods, and once you start to train yourself to do it, you know you see the oddball property all the time. You see the gas station in the residential neighborhood, and you're like, why is that there? You see the one-story crumbling retail center where there's tons of really nice housing around, and you start to see those types of things. And so those are the kind of opportunities that we're looking for where there's already an established neighborhood for the most part. The neighborhood is the amenity, right? It's a great place to be. There's already shops. There's already stores. There's already other housing for the most part. But there's a missing piece of that puzzle. And we like to find those sites that are the missing piece of that puzzle. Once you get a site under contract, what kind of contingencies do you put in place? Because it takes the projects you're doing, what, take a year maybe for you to do the due diligence on it? Is that accurate? Yeah, it's about it. I mean, I, I tell people, I tell sellers when I sit down with them, if it, I mean, it differs you know, everywhere, but obviously the majority of our projects have been in the city of Minneapolis. And I say to the seller, you know, barring anything super out of the ordinary here, the day you and I agree on a deal, I'm probably a year away from putting a shovel on the ground. What we're normally doing is trying to be... We're trying not to compete on sites where nine other people are trying to buy it too, and you just need to pay cash and close the next day. I mean, we're trying to find those sites that the only other really good use is to redevelop it. So we're going, we're, you know, we'll approach sellers or we're really fortunate now in the beginning, it was me out there running around, writing down addresses, calling people, trying to figure stuff out. Now that we've, we've done, I've completed seven projects, I have two more under construction. I, I'm fortunate now that people know what I'm looking for. And I, I just get a lot of calls and a lot of opportunities sent to me, which is great. But we talk to these sellers and we say, look, you, you know, we'll, we're going to build a project here. So 
But here are all the things that have to happen between when I, when I acquire this and, and when we go. So a lot of times we're trying to not close on the property until we're ready to build. We will tell sellers that this is a year-long contract or whatever, you know, whatever the timing is. And we'll, we'll get pushback certainly sometimes. And, and I'm speaking in generalities. Obviously, some deals, you, know, you have to close sooner and, and things change. But in a perfect world, and we've been able to do this in our last several, we put the project under a purchase agreement. And then we go to work, we design a project, we do all the environmental studies, we get it all figured out, and then we get it approved by the city, get all the rest of the design done, and then we hopefully don't close and actually own the property until we're simultaneously closing on our construction loan and basically shovels in the ground the next day. I read also on Twitter that you thought that Paul Sweeney could be like a billion dollar company at some point. And basically you were like, I don't know if if that's something I want to do. You've hired a couple of employees. I think it was just you and Jeff for until up until recently, right? You've brought on employees. What's that been like bringing on new people and kind of scaling it to some degree? And what is the, the vision for the company? Because you're not exiting your properties generally, are you? We're trying not to for the most part, if we, if we can. Just to start, I mean, I always say on some of my tweets, you have to take them with a little bit of a grain of salt. But Obviously, what I what I meant when I said that was I, I think we've got a really great company now, and I think we could kind of do as much or as little as we want with it. But I think that you know we part of what appealed to me about Jeff and and vice versa is we're also very devoted. I mean, and obviously everybody is, but we're we're very devoted to our families. Spending a lot of time with them is important. Quality of life is super important to us, and I I think that. We're not looking to work 90 hours a week every week for the rest of our lives just to just to build a company to get more and more and more. I think we we like to do we we know if we do a project every year or a couple projects or a project every other year at the scale we're working at now, the financial stuff will take care of itself. We're really trying to just focus on, on doing good projects. But we did, you know, earlier this year had prior to interest rates doubling, construction costs going up 50%, the world turning on its head. You know, we had a huge pipeline. I mean, we had like four or five projects that we were very seriously working on. And we realized there was no way we were going to be able to do them, just the two of us. We needed help. We've hired a couple young women, one who graduated from law school, who we both had known, and another young woman who has a great design background from Vogue and Berghoff Goodman in New York. And we have, so we have two basically project managers now that are each managing a project, which has been phenomenal. It's been a transition. I joke with them and I, I apologize to them almost daily that it's been a hard transition for me because I'm I've spent 20 years doing the work, just day after day after day doing the work. So it's a new thing for me to I still do a lot of the work, but to pull back and to let other people do things and to try to take on more of a manager management, you know, role. Uh, it's been a it's been a transition. I, I joke that I'm probably a better developer than I am a manager. <laughs> At least so far. Hopefully, hopefully, I can continue to improve as a manager. But I think it's it's true. It's funny. I I now see the things I do and the way I behave and the actions I take, and it it brings me back to my first bosses, Will and Bruce, who their management style was like, "All right, go figure it out." Or you want to have a review? Well, what you're doing fine. We'll let you know if there's a problem. You know, because they're the same thing. They were just in the stuff all day long doing development. So it's been really funny to kind of come full circle and now realize I'm kind of, I sometimes do that myself. Talk to us a little bit about how important community development is, whether it's developing, you know, if you're doing a project, what are you guys actively doing to build relationships to get the projects done? To answer your question, it's very, it's extremely important to us because we, we see our roles as developers as having a lot of responsibility to the communities that we work in because we're making change. We are, we are the instigators of some level of change in those communities. Our hope every time is that it's a positive change and that it's a, that's an improvement and an enhancement to the community. But we're not naive and we understand that, especially when we first arrive or when we first announce something or when people first hear of something, the knee-jerk reaction is to oppose it or to not want to do it or to think it's, gonna, to think it's going to be a negative. There's certainly some projects we've done where we haven't been able to garner the ne- as much support as we had hoped. We still do the project. And then afterward, people come out of the woodwork and say, oh, this is actually great. We're, we really like it. But we've learned a lot about community development and how we approach that. And, and I would say, Patrick, the probably the number one thing we do is just listen. 
We go into our community. We do a lot of communication with neighbors. We get in touch with neighbors. We meet with the city council people from certain neighborhoods. We're not coming in anywhere trying to push our vision on people. We're trying to understand what's needed in the community, what people want. There's a huge housing shortage, so we know that we want to provide housing. But how can we do that in a way that, that fits into the neighborhood? And we, we take a lot of time and care with that. We try to get the neighborhood involved. On our last project, we realized it was being, you know, some of the land was sacred to, to the Native American community. And we branded the project that way. We got, we, we met and got engaged with, we got to know the, you know, a, a large portion of the Minneapolis Native American community from the Dakota tribe. We have some of them as investors in the building. We have a bunch of Dakota artists who did artwork for the building. We have language consultants from the University of Minnesota who are now good friends of ours. I think at the end of the day, it's community engagement and it's time and it's effort. And I I don't mean to say that, that other people don't do that, but I think it's a different mentality when you go in to do a project where you think we're going to own this for 50 years. So how do we think about who we're building this for and where we're building this and who's everybody around us versus we're going to, I'm trying to build this thing and and sell it the next year and I'm in and out of this community in 24 months. I care, but I don't care that much or I don't have to care that much. right? And again, that's, that's just a different business model. One is not better than the other, but Jeff and I are aligned in the way that we think about how we do community development. I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome too, how design, I've seen a lot of your projects on Twitter. They're really beautiful buildings. I think a lot of developers, you know, for cost cutting reasons, they'll throw the design aspect out the window or take shortcuts or whatever. I think it's really awesome how involved in the design process you are. Is that something like right off the bat that you do, or do you have outside architects that you're working with that help with that? We've worked with some really phenomenal architects. So most of the credit at the end of the day goes to the architects. They come up with the, these great you know, ideas. One thing that Jeff and I do really well is we're good at setting the vision for what we're trying to achieve, though. I think you know, and our, our architects would echo this. I think we push them further and ask for more. And I, I think we don't stop until it's right in our mind. I think from, from all the other developers I know, and, and obviously there's some that, that do just as good or better design than we do, but I think the main difference that I've seen is just the amount of time that as a firm, we're willing to spend on the design. Like We're not willing to stop until it's exactly how we want it. We're fortunate. We've got great architects. You know, As I said earlier, I'm not sure how I learned how to do it other than I think maybe I've always known how. And it wasn't until we lo- looking back, connecting the dots that I've always been obsessed with what houses look like and what, what spaces look like. And they bring me energy. And it's always been a thing. When we did our first project uh, that was called Colo, when we met with the architects, Jeff and I partnered, and I took a bunch of images in that I said, look, these are the things I've been thinking about for the last 10 years. Here's some of the projects around the country that I love. And I'd love to not... I don't want to copy any of these, but I'm just saying this, like, this is what I'm trying... This is what I want us to achieve. We spent a bunch of time and I remember our architect said, you're either going to be my favorite client of all time or we're never going to work again. <laughs> we're never going to work again together. And I, I had this idea that I just thought we could execute some really, really great design. And I remember telling Jeff, please, please just trust me on this one. And to his credit, he said, okay, yeah, go do it. And I said, look, if I got to do it once the way I think we should. And if it doesn't resonate with people, if nobody cares, if nobody can, doesn't make, nobody notices, then I, I can rest easy saying, okay, that wasn't the right... I had an idea. It might have been a selfish idea that I just wanted to do, and it didn't seem to matter. But we're still trading on Colo five years later. It was a phenomenal project. We get calls every other week. Somebody who drove by and said, oh my God, I drove by. And, and that was our first one. And we made it really cool, I think. So it's been great. Sean, I have a ton of questions I could ask you, but we're going to wrap things up. This has been great. I, re- I really appreciate your time. Love having you on the show today. Maybe we can do another session, maybe with Moses. It'd be awesome to do like something oh, with him. Be great. It'd be yeah. really cool to do. For our listeners that want to learn more about you or maybe follow you on Twitter, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or, or get in touch? It's funny to say now that I've been on Twitter for two years that that's the best way to find me. But it's, yeah, it's Sean D. Sweeney on Twitter. You can find me on there. We have a website, hallsweeney.com as well. And you can track us down either one of those two ways and uh, love to hear from people. Seems like you love the educational process too of helping people. 
Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I there's few days that I don't wake up now that I kind of can't believe how lucky I am. And I think a lot of that has to do with how many people have helped me along the way and have been kind and gracious and giving and taken a risk on me. And I mean, I could talk about it for hours. So I want to, as much as possible, obviously pay that forward and try to be that person for other people. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing story, you know, from starting as a receptionist to I think you're what, 700, over 700 units coming in to Minneapolis? When the two projects that are under construction, when they're finished, since I started the company in 2017, personally, I'll have developed over 700 apartment units since then. Sean, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate having you today. Thank you, Patrick. It was great. Great to talk to you. And I I appreciate being on the show. Thanks very much. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.